everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast, where we have smart conversations about prenatal care, birth plans, parenthood, women's health, feminism, food, politics, health care, and everything else. This pod is my way of sharing all the stuff I learned over a 20-something-year career as a labor and delivery nurse about the healthcare industry and birth world here in the U.S. It's my way of sharing a few tips and a little perspective and, you know, a few stories about, you know, the decades that I've spent raising kids who, if I may say so myself, have all turned out to be spectacular human beings who are making excellent contributions in the world. Um, This podcast is also my way of sharing what I've learned over a decade working in global women's and maternal health advocacy. But the more we talk about all those topics, the more clear it becomes that parenthood, motherhood, fatherhood are really universal experiences that touch every aspect of our lives. I've often said everybody has a mother, is a mother, or knows a mother. And the same can be said for fathers. And while everyone's circumstances are unique, we're far more alike than we are different. Now this week, I'm going to answer a quick email, and then we're going to get on the phone with our guest. Um, And we've been talking a lot about some very practical topics lately, and I'm in the mood for something a little different. So we're going to move away from politics, healthcare, and wellness, and talk about literature, friendship, and books, my favorite things. And we're going to talk about how parenting and parenthood influence characters, and we're going to talk about writing and friendships and the course that all of this takes on our lives. So we'll get to all that in just a minute. But first, I want to give a big shout out to the Parents on Demand Network, of which Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is included. That's where you'll find a curated collection of all kinds of pregnancy and parenting podcasts all in one spot. One of those podcasts is Liz's Healthy Table, where registered dietitian Liz Weiss dishes with fellow food lovers, dietitians, cookbook authors, and top chefs to tackle the food and nutrition topics that you want to hear about. Hi, Liz. Go find Liz's Healthy Table in the podnetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get to that email. The subject line reads, menopause questions. So you might wonder what this has to do with pregnancy, but let's read on. Hello. I read an article maybe a year back that's been bothering me. It was a clickbait article, but I haven't been able to figure out enough information. The article was about if you started your period young, you will go into menopause way early. I went through puberty at nine and now I'm 29 and I hope to have kids maybe not too far off, but not yet. Should I be letting this stress me out and feeling rushed? Thank you. Well, hey there. No, you shouldn't feel stressed or rushed. Those kinds of articles can't possibly indicate, you know, when you're going to go through menopause or lose your fertility. There are just too many other factors at play. And as you mentioned, it was a clickbait article that's meant to startle people into reading through to the end. Now, it is true that women tend to be less fertile at the end of their 30s than they are at the the end of their 20s, but plenty of women are able to conceive and have baby well into their 40s, especially with advanced reproductive technologies. Women's fertility windows are now open for much longer than they ever have been before. Now, I get why you're worried. Nine is a little young to start your period, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong with you at all. That's probably just when your body decided to start. And you know what? Who knows? Maybe generations of women in your family have started their periods young. For you, maybe this is just completely normal. 
It also doesn't mean you have to rush into having a baby, which I don't think anybody should do. Um, You know, you're probably not going to run out of time. You most likely have years ahead of you before, you know, having a baby isn't an option anymore. And what I would do in your situation is to bring this article up the next time you meet with your gynecologist. Ask her what she thinks your fertility odds are. I'm betting you're going to get some pretty reassuring answers. So should you be stressed or rushed? Absolutely not. I hope this helps a little. Okay, let's get to this week's guest. Deborah Reed is the author of four novels, Carry Yourself Back to Me, Olive, Things We Set on Fire, and her brand new release, The Days When Birds Come Back. She's also authored two popular thrillers under the pen name Audrey Braun. Let's get Deborah on the line. Hi, Deborah. It's Jeannie. Hi, Jeannie. How are you? I am doing really well. I'm doing well. Um, it's not often that I have somebody in my same state that I'm interviewing. So you're out <laughs> on the coast, right? That's right. I'm in Manzanita, where I live. Yeah, our, my favorite little beach town. I just love it there. It's, and It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And for listeners all over the world, literally, um, but mostly around the United States, I don't know. Do we want to tell them how cool it is there? Do we want to mention the <laughs> no. rocky coast and the wind and the beautiful scenery and the great little coffee shops? And... Yeah, I actually had that question the other night at a reading I gave. The woman said uh, it was a reading locally here in town, and she said, "At the adorable okay? little bookshop." Uh, I, actually, at the Hoffman Art Center, where they hold the Manzanita Writers Series, it was a crowd of like sixty people that showed up. It was I was quite astonished. And um, and one of the questions was, "Are you concerned that people will know that even though you've changed the name in the story um, to uh, Nestucca Beach instead of Manzanita, mm-hmm. that that everyone's going to want to come here?" And I and I said, "Well, you know, I <laughs> should only be so lucky that." So millions of people will read my book and all want to come and discover, you know, the literary secrets behind the novel. Um, I thought, I don't, I don't think it's like wild where everyone's going to suddenly um, start wanting to hike the Pacific Coast Trail. But um, it was a nice thought. <laughs> I don't think we need to worry about that. You know, as you were talking about it, you know, the, it, you had your reading, you know, at the community center there, did you say? Is that where mm-hmm. it was at the community center? Uh, the Hoffman Center for the Arts. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It reminded me that one of my very, very, very first and only readings that I had um, for the very first published piece I had was up at the community center in Cannon Beach, just up the road from you. Oh, yeah. 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 And it was just a dorky essay that I had published in an anthology, but they invited me to read it out there. And and they, oh. I was thrilled. It was You know, this was like 15 years ago, and it was my first inkling of ever doing anything like this. And I was thrilled, and at least a dozen people were there to hear me. Hey, that's pretty good. (laughs) And then they gave me a check for $75, and I was wow, I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Well, that's terrific. That's a great story. I know. Beach communities support their artists. 
They do. In fact, I the, the the first time I ever came to Manzanita was when I was invited to do the Manzanita Writers Series back in 2011 when my novel Carry Yourself Back to Me came out. I had never been to Manzanita, and I had been living in Portland for decades. And it was my first trip out here. I absolutely fell in love with the place, and I ended up moving here full time three three years ago. It's a great little town. Great little mm-hmm. town. I love it there. Yes. And, I, yeah. and I've been to the um, 4th of July parade several oh, times. Oh, yes. So dorky. Oh, yes. So fun. It's so perfectly dorky. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Deborah, yeah. I read um, a bit of your bio before I got you on the line here. But my first question is, who are you and what do you do? Well, uh, I'm Deborah Reed. I am a novelist. I uh, basically write novels for a living. My most recent novel that just came out a couple of weeks ago is The Days When Birds Come Back. And as I mentioned, it takes place here on the coast of Oregon in this tiny little town of less than 600 people where I live, mm-hmm. although the names have changed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, I've written four, four literary novels under my real name and then two thrillers under the pen name of Audrey Braun. Uh, I'm also a teacher. I teach creative writing at workshops and conferences around the United States. And um, for the last four or five years, I've been teaching um, as a co-director of the Black Force Writing Seminars in Freiburg, Germany, at the University of Freiburg there. So every summer I go for at least two weeks and teach um, creative writing, novel writing in particular, in English, uh, to a group of students from around the world. Anyone can apply. That is a sweet gig. I, it I, is. Yeah. I, it is. <laughs> yeah. I love how authors, you know, package things together to make their careers work. And it's mm-hmm. never just one thing. No, yeah. no, it never is. I, I know so many people, uh, most writers I know are doing uh, a multitude of things they're they're also teaching and they could be lawyers um um doing different types of writing mm-hmm. a friend that lives in town is a is a um, he writes but he's also a, a pretty well-known literary agent but he also owns the local whiskey bar so <laughs> everybody's busy doing something uh, yeah. of interest yeah um, but i think teaching in particular is what you find most times with writers and i think it's a natural extension of the writing process um and it's uh it's also a way of of giving back to um people who are just starting out and um in the ways that you know people who went ahead of you gave to you and um it also keeps the conversation going you know i learn a lot about writing by teaching writing hmm. um, because you're talking about it all the time and you're discovering um you're giving voice to to ways um, that um, to ways of looking at writing that you might not otherwise do if you didn't have to explain it to someone. Right, right. You're you're digging yeah. deep into your own process and trying to figure it out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I I often think about you know the the differences between um, fiction writers and nonfiction writers, and I don't know that there's that much difference except for that nonfiction at least comes off as more marketable 
And I know oh, it takes definitely. up a lot more real estate in the bookstores. Yes, both of those are absolutely true. Uh, yeah. My best friend, Nancy Rommelman, is a journalist, and we we have this conversation all the time about the differences between fiction and nonfiction. I mean, I feel like, oh, you know, nonfiction writers have it easy because everybody wants their books, and every, <laughs> they're so much easier to sell, and uh, people, people, <laughs> you know. Well, well that's true unless you're writing people. about women and mothers. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, imagine if you're writing about women and mothers and you're writing fiction. That's kind of where I'm at. I'm like at the bottom of the barrel, you know. Um, It's it's quite a different market and uh, with fiction being the hardest to sell. It's uh, there's an artistry that um, that is involved with fiction where you're taking you're taking absolutely nothing and turning it into something. Whereas nonfiction, the something already exists. You just have to turn it into something that translates to the reader um, in a way that is your own take and your own style on it. So, yeah. 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 Well, you and I, um, you and I have at least one mutual friend in common, Nancy Rommelman, who you mentioned, who also mm-hmm. has a book coming out pretty darn soon about yes. that pertains to motherhood. But I don't want to talk about her book yet. I, wa- I want to talk first about something that is really always so interesting to me and something that many of my listeners who are either brand new parents or newly expectant parents or, you know, parents who've been at it a while, but about this kind of chain of friends that you make through mothers and children or through fathers and children. Because Nancy and I met via our daughters when she Mm -hmm. first moved to Portland. um, And now those daughters are grown women. Um, And we also met through mutual friends in Los Angeles, who I literally met in the sandbox when my oldest daughter was a one-year-old. And we've stayed friends all these many years. And, um, you know, it's interesting it's a trail of mother friends. Yes, it is. I have the same. And my sons are 10 years apart. So I have two different stages of, of friendships. Yeah. Um, in fact, I, I just had an interesting experience the other day in the, in the cafe here. On Sunday morning, I was in there with a friend. And I saw this woman who looked so familiar. And then it dawned on me who she was. She's Both her and her husband are the parents of a of a now young man that my older son went to school with all through school with. And, um, and there they were, and we were just catching up and um, it turns out her son is teaching English at Lincoln high school where the, both the boys graduated from. And, and my son is teaching writing down at El Camino college in, um, in Los Angeles. And it was just the most, yes, in Torrance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it was the most, exhilarating conversation we were just thrilled to to see each other again um like you know no time had gone by and um there is it is a particular kind of friendship it's a it's a strange thing to know someone's children when um when they're just starting out you know in yeah. kindergarten and terrified those first days yeah. and now these boys are in college or out of college and um they're like timekeepers, you yeah. know, we look at them and we see our whole lives right there um, going way too quickly. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. So fast. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. We had a similar experience of um, our oldest 
graduated high school 12 years ago, and our youngest is graduating this year. So there's a big gap mm. there in terms of those ah. ages and a few in between. Yes. And um, we were at an event for our senior in high school and saw parents from when our oldest daughter was in grade school. And so it was a, it was a big gap in time since we'd seen them, yeah. like 15 to 20 years. And it was startling. I got to tell you. It is. It was it startling is. to see um, the imprint of their lives and age. You know, like we hadn't seen them in 15 years. It was pretty remarkable. Yeah. It's yeah. like an instant mortality check. <laughs> yes, it sure is. It sure is. And you both look at each other and go, wow, they're 30 now. Yeah, how'd that happen? Uh huh. Yeah. Then how old are we? If they're thirty, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are does that we mean? still thirty-five? Right? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, <laughs> let's talk about the book, "The Days When Birds okay. Come Back." And mm -hmm. I don't want you to give away too much, but I'm hoping you'll tell us a little bit about it and maybe read a little bit. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Okay. Uh, well, um, as I mentioned, it takes place on the Oregon coast, and there are some uh, family relationships there as well. Um, it's a story about a woman named June who has returned to the coast um, uh, after a divorce, and she is a recovering alcoholic who is trying to stay sober. And she's also a writer, which that part, you know, the writer and the, the coastal living part certainly rings true with my own life. And, um, and she has been given, uh, inherited these two homes. They are um, Sears kits uh, from the 1940s. And one is a bungalow and the other is a cottage next door. She grew up there uh, in between these two homes and her grandparents have died. Her father has since died and she's got these two homes. And the bungalow's in disrepair, and she needs to renovate it and sell it. And then along comes uh, this man, Jameson, who has his own um, uh, baggage of, of heartache that he brings into the story. And um, he spends the summer renovating this home right next door to her. And um, as the two of them get to know each other, their past that they're both very mired in um, bubble up to the surface and uh, they begin to to shake these things loose um, and hopefully they um, they find a way to to move forward okay I gotta ask you a question right off the bat okay his name is Jameson like the whiskey and yes. she's dealing with sobriety <laughs> I know, I know. It's very on the nose, but I've got to tell you, I named him that before I discovered in my writing that June was a recovering alcoholic. And then once he already had that name, I couldn't bear to not leave it. It just was like, okay, I know people are going to say, come on, it's too much. But I didn't know actually someone named Jameson, so it's not too far. I had to ask. Fed. I had to ask. <laughs> I know, I know. And this but book, I just, I just went with it. Well, you know that you know, forty, fifty, sixty years from now, when this book is still the most talked about novel, people are going to be saying that you did that intentionally, and what it says about the character. And, yeah. Well, let's hope. Let's I, hope. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, what are you going to read for us? Oh well, I think I'll just read uh, the opening, the opening page um, here just a, a few paragraphs. Okay. It was nearly noon on the Oregon coast. 
the day already hot, when June Byrne shook out her father's old camp blanket on the backyard lawn, removed her T-shirt, and lay with bare breasts to the sun. She had phoned the contractor again and, like last week and the week before, hung up at the sound of his voice. Except today, a woman answered and pleaded gently with June, Why do you keep calling? You want. June was drawn to the warmth of her tone and hesitated before disconnecting the call. Aside from the golf course beyond the edge of the property, June's yard was relatively private, bordered by birch trees and evergreens and ferns. She lay squeezing her eyes shut, trying to exchange the world inside herself for the one out around her, the foul sea breeze slicing the air, the chickadees singing at the feeders. Every now and then, she heard the thwack of a short iron hitting a glassy little ball. But the salty sweat on June's upper lip made her think of margaritas on the beach, and June was one month sober, and yes, it was not quite noon. Thirty-five years old, nearly thirty-six, and at night with the windows open, June could smell her own skin, and she smelled different without the drinking. She was different, or perhaps she was something of a snake, having shed one skin to live inside another. Hmm. Ooh. <laughs> That's a lot. And I can, you know, I poor, can... poor June. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it all resonates with me very strongly. And um, mm. yeah, you're dealing I'm with glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. A lot of those things really resonate a lot of the things that you're t- you talk about right on the, you know, in the descriptor and on that first page, you know, June's divorce, you know, is trying to stay sober. Um, Mm-hmm. You mentioned that her career is stalled out and, you know, and I know that throughout the book, you deal with quite a few great big issues like gun violence and parent guilt and, and motherless daughters. Yes. And, I mean, yes. How do you do yes. that? How do you write a that lot. into fiction? How How do you actually do it? Well, yeah, I, I wish I had a, a really straightforward answer to that question but the the truth is I don't fully know I do know um I do know that I allow myself to become immersed fully in my imagination and I allow myself to follow these characters as their story unfolds and um what somehow when I put them in a scene in a and I give them a strong sense of place which is where I always begin with my novels um something happens where slowly bit by bit um, there's a weaving that takes place and an understanding for who these people are, especially when I get them talking to each other and I hear the kind of things that they are likely to say, it becomes more and more clear to me the, the struggles that they might be dealing with. And um, with June, the drinking wasn't her biggest problem, really, which the reader will find out later in the novel. Um, she's got quite a few, but there was something more. I felt she's really quite damaged and um, not a very pleasant person uh, to be around. And it didn't seem enough to me that a divorce and struggling with alcohol could be the, the driving force of, of this um, state that she was living in, so mired in the past. And, um, yeah, it wasn't until I kept writing that I understood where these other things came from with mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think that I've mentioned on the podcast or certainly, you know, other places that I've written before that I've dealt with sobriety myself and I've been sober for 15 mm. years. So you ah. know, at a time when I had young children. And so that uh, oh, is a yeah. very powerful. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. anytime you read something or, you know, you, you pick up any piece of literature, or you go to a movie or something, the pieces that reflect your experience are going to resonate more strongly than other pieces. And absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, yeah. Kind um, of... And I, I don't have a direct um, experience for, personally with alcoholism, but mm -hmm. um, I do within my family. Mm -hmm. um, I have seen and dealt with um, drug addiction and alcohol um, addiction. And, um, and so I know what the fallout is from that. I understand it um, deeply and, um, it's a it's a tough, tough road. It is, As, you know, especially I think right now in um, our society and with the use of social media, we we see and hear a lot about mothers and parents drinking. You know, I mean, even stupid mm -hmm. ways like mommy juice and wine moms yes. and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but it's yes. also a really huge part of um, mother friendships. And that's so true. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if you noticed that Christy Coulter um, is a, she blurbed the book. She has a book coming out called nothing good can come from this. And it's an essays that stemmed from um, an essay that she wrote that went viral called Anjali. That uh, was all about the cult, you know, her trying to not drink anymore and live while living in this culture of everyone at work goes out to drink after. Yeah. And um, they, every um, uh, in particular is how it applies to women right. and drinking and the appeal that is there, the sort of the branding of that in a yeah. way yeah. and how she has navigated that as yeah. uh, in her sobriety. It's it's quite quite interesting yeah um, it, it's a challenge to navigate because um mm -hmm. you know for for many people that i've spoken to who have given it up you know it decided yeah i'm done with it um it also meant that the friendships changed many of them you find were actually right. all about the booze and those go away it's a, it's mm -hmm. yeah, yeah well yeah yeah, yeah yeah but you know we can talk about all kinds of things and it seems like the way that um, the way that things are going culturally right now, we're seeing more and more about women's shared experiences. We're reading more about it. We're seeing it in movies. We're hearing more about it. And, and I think that these kinds of subtle textures that we make that, that are apparent in different lives, we're going to hear more about it. People aren't going to feel so Yeah. Wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm very encouraged by that. You know, I've always been a bit discouraged by the um the the fact that, you know, I I if you look online, I women writers, you see as a category, you mm -hmm. know, women women's fiction. And, you know, of course, we we don't want to 
imply that, you know, it's lesser than, but it's not considered fiction. It, you know, we don't want to imply it's lesser than by, by calling it women's fiction. Yeah. But why is it called women's fiction? Like lady <laughs> so doctors. That men, yeah, exactly. So yeah. that it's like a signal to men not to go near it or, I, I, or you know, <laughs> or a signal to women that it's okay to read it. I don't know. But know. It, uh, it drives me crazy. And I would love to see us move away from that. And uh, I think... Uh, I still haven't seen it yet, and I'm dying to see Lady Bird, but just the idea that um, it's a story about a young woman, and, you know, it's centered around her life, her and her mother, that everyone is enjoying. It's like, (laughs) you know, an initiation Mm -hmm. to, to say, look, we can all... And should we, we can all enjoy these stories and should be looking at them, whether you're male or female. It's not an exclusive audience to women just because it, it is a woman's story. You right, know? right. Women have been reading men's stories forever. You know, yes. we've been watching Which men's just movies. Called... We just, yeah, we just call yeah. them novels and movies. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's refreshing. It's so refreshing to see this shift yeah. taking place now. Well, women yeah. today are the content creators from which we'll mine going forward. And right now mm. there's this huge blossoming of what we can do and what willing what society is willing to hear from us. You know. Yeah. This is the beginning. Yeah. This is the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. It's exciting. Yeah. Well, death of a parent. often plays a critical role in a character's development and choices. And that's something that's in the book quite a bit. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I do. Yeah. Because it's kind of a, it's kind of a theme that pops up in, in all of my books. Most, yeah, everyone I think, (laughs) Um, which is interesting because both of my parents are still alive. Mm -hmm. However, I think it stems from, and, you know, I'm just an armchair psychologist here. But for me personally, my parents divorced when I was four, and I don't really remember it. But I, I feel like it had, had a, 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 a lifelong lasting effect uh, on me and the way that I see um, people departing from other people's lives and that tearing apart. And even though it was amicable and I saw my father all the time growing up and we're very close, but there was something there that kind of tore open. And um, there are a lot of dead fathers (laughs) in my books, Mm. (laughs) Uh, even though mine is very much alive. um, But there is a, there is a, um, a very tender point there, I think, um, within me as an artist. And um, actually, it reminds me of um, this essay that uh, Nick Cave wrote. He gave a talk on it about the secret of the sad love song. And he, he talks about how this tearing open and this this gaping hole that trauma leaves behind, especially in, in young children, um, tends to become a place, hopefully, that you get to fill with something better, even better than what was there before. And I sort of see it like that, where I am I'm taking away these, um, these bonds or uh, this, this safety or this, this sanctity of, of a parent caring for a child. I'm removing that for these people. And, I'm, and I, over and over, I have a chance to rebuild it into something beautiful and solid and long lasting. And that's the case with the days when birds come back. There's some mental illness there in the family um, with her father. And um, I don't think it's 
giving anything away, you find out right at the beginning that he, he commits suicide when uh, June is seven years old and she's left in the care of her grandparents. Um, and I won't tell about the mother. That's something that comes much later in the story of why she's not in the picture. But um, I, too, had a, a grandmother who played a very large role in raising me. And I think there's something incredibly precious about that kind of relationship that is is sort of like a parent-child, but it's more of a surrogate parent without the same kind of baggage yeah. as a parent. And so there's a there's an openness to it and a, and a more of an unconditional love, I think, that is exchanged there. So um, and, I do have grandparents um, playing roles in other novels as well. And grandparents are inevitably older than the parents. So they've got, you know, decades more experience, maturity, yes. stability, trauma. That's you know, right. Their, mm-hmm. their vault from which they can pull from is a lot deeper. Yeah. It is. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. The death yeah. and the, there's a gentle there's a gentleness with that wisdom. <laughs> or is it just bring, tired? Right? <laughs> Life's worn you down, you know? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Kind of like after yeah. you've had your second or third child, you're like, whatever. I right know it. With yeah. a screwdriver, you know. <laughs> Don't hurt yourself. Be careful. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. tr- that screwdriver story. That screwdriver is my very, very, very favorite story for my fourth child. So literally, I was letting my daughter and her best friend play with screwdrivers. I had the same story, honestly. Okay, well, this my my daughter's friend was really industrious with it and took apart my daughter's toddler bed. And my daughter's response was, that Chloe, she can just screw and screw and screw till the headboard (laughs) came off. My oldest daughter did not play with screwdrivers. Thank you very much. Yeah, of course not. Of course not. Yeah, my kids are 10 years apart. And I, my story with the screwdriver is that my son, uh, my younger son was um, a toddler. And we had some friends over who had not had their first child yet. And here goes my toddler running through the house with a screwdriver. And they're like, oh, oh, should, is that okay? I'm like, nah. <laughs> Maybe you'll fix fine. something. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Back over the shoulder. Oh, yeah. Don't fall on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would have never done that no. with the first board. We no. are so careful with. And, you know, it's no wonder the, the birthing order of children, you know, has uh, something to do with their personalities. Because I, I truly believe we parent them quite differently. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we we were talking about you know parental death, and I appreciate that you have the dead fathers in your stories because the deaths of mothers are rampant in literature. They get killed off easy and fast. Hell, it's all over Disney. Yeah. And you know, you got to wonder is it is that because it's the worst thing that could happen to somebody? So there's a lot to build off there, or is it because without a mother on the scene, the main character can get up? to all kinds of no good oh good point yeah, yeah good point yeah. yeah I've um mine are mine the fathers are gone and the mothers are um you know I somewhat absent or unstable or so it's never it's, it's not necessarily a good situation either it's not like they're in the in the safety uh, and care of of a responsible adult either um yeah. 
it's just all falling apart. Um, yeah. But that's an interesting, it's a, you're right about missing mothers. That is true. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Without the mothers, mm. anything can happen. And usually <laughs> the fathers are either hapless and, you know, you know, like right. Belle's father, you know, it, we got a dad there, but he's kind of a a doofus. Right. Yeah. So she gets, <laughs> yeah. she has her adventure, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. But I, <laughs> I also like that there's an opportunity in um, your novel to talk about the importance of multi-generations of, of parents, you know, like the grandmother or the aunt, you know, or the other, mm-hmm. the co-parent who comes in with a different perspective, different set of resources to help. And I think that, yeah, you know, for all time immortal, that's just how it was. You know, we say it takes a village to raise a child, but you know, right. that is just the way it is. And, and all over the world, it still is. But yes, uh, but we've kind of gotten ourselves isolated you know, in this. Yeah. Everybody moves around. My, my own children <clears throat> have not grown up with a grandparent nearby, which has been such a sad thing for me mm-hmm. um, that they have not had that experience because mm-hmm. everyone in my family lives in the Midwest and the South. Um, we're the only ones out here on the, on the West coast. So they see their grandparents periodically, but Nothing, nothing like the nurturing that I experienced as a as a child growing up, and um, and I infused that um, in June's grandfather in the novel. He um, he he pays a lot of uh, attention to June and and cares for her in a way that teaches her a lot about the natural world and the importance of the natural world, which the coast is the perfect setting for that there's so much going on we my husband and I call it this our theater you know every day it's like what's happening in our theater out mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. um yesterday there were two deer one one buck and one doe literally standing at my at our front porch looking at us through the windows while we were laughing out of pure joy <laughs> they were right there watching us watch them and um there, it's just there's always something like that and I um I just, as I was writing this novel, I thought, how wonderful would it be to raise a child in a place like this and teach them all these things and point them out and and their importance um, in in the roles that they can play in a person's life that way. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And, you know, Mm -hmm. our boys were raised, or our children were raised in a city, but Portland is one of the most gorgeous and natural yeah. cities so that they've got access to that but nothing like being raised you know in the country or at the beach or something like that yeah mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 so you know i as i said earlier a lot of our listeners are new parents or newly expecting and the end game you know when kids are grown and gone is a long time off it's it's hard to even imagine and yet it happens mm. so much faster than we think. And, yeah. and, you know, some of us, depending on what our experience with our parents has been, there's this idea that, you know, mo- mothering or, or parenting or fathering kind of ends at 18 or 21. And yeah. that's yeah. not the case. I mean, at least it no. doesn't have to be the case. 
No, in fact, I was just having this conversation with someone the other day that you you go through all of these stages of, I think, parenting, nobody ever mentioned or at least articulated to me in any way that it's this constant process of letting go. You know, you've got this newborn baby and that's one kind of human that you are attached to. And then the next you've got a child and the next you've got an adolescent and then, (laughs) and it keeps going. And, and you're the, the, the person that you fall in love with and get to know is constantly turning into another person Mm -hmm. and another and another, and you are having to adjust along the way um, year after year to all of the changes. You have to adjust to the way that you interact with them and relate to them and help them or not help them. And, um, and then that becomes, I think, a, a, a real driving force uh, of the relationship as when they become adults is that you're, do you, how involved do you remain? Mm-hmm. And you're doing this dance of, do I step in? Do I step out? Do they need me? Do they not want me around? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a constant um, learning curve. It mm-hmm. has not slowed down for me at all. And my, my sons are 31 and, and 21, and I'm mm-hmm. still learning how to mother them in the ways that they need mothering at the particular ages that they find themselves in. Yeah, there's no end game. Although I hear no. about... I, I know plenty of you know people who really don't have any relationship with their parents as adults. I know those people, and yeah. I know mothers yeah. who raise their kids with, hey, 18 and done, man. Whatever happens after mm-hmm. that is their problem. Right. Um, and I, you know, yeah. I, I kind of get it, you know, but it's mm-hmm. so different from, you know, the experience that I have with having adult children where – you know, you're letting go of control, but as you do that, you are gaining more access to just being in a relationship with these people you helped create. And it's yes. more of a consulting position. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's no, I've seen that um, my extended family, these very fractured relationships where um, mothers or fathers are estranged from their children and um, whether it's the child's choice or the adult child's choice or the parent's choice or both. Um, and sometimes I think it's really for the best. I mean, these relationships are, are so damaged that anytime they, either of them go near them, all these things are set off. Um, you know, uh, these, um, everything gets fired up and relived and, um, can be um, just another tragedy waiting to happen again and again. And so oftentimes people do have to let go. And, um, um, but I feel very fortunate that that is not the case with me and my own parents is not the case with me and my own children, um, very close to my children. And um, I can't imagine it being any other way, but I also consider myself very, very lucky because I know that is not the case for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk just a little bit more about your writing career. Um, Okay. And I've kept you on the line quite a while. You still have time for us? Oh, sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Cool, cool. Yeah. I love talking about this stuff. I love it. That's fun. (laughs) Well, I started, you know, my writing career pretty late, you know, during my 
early 40s, primarily as a way to make a living doing something other than bedside nursing. And so Mm -hmm. I did, you know, magazines and websites and newspapers. And still now my main, you know, my main source of income is primarily writing for humanitarian organizations. So Mm. I, as a nonfiction writer with a house full of kids, um, was very motivated to write uh, for money and, um, you know, way to make a living. That's, it also was at this time where I had this house full of kids. And as so many parents (laughs) find, you've got to figure out ways how to piece all your resources together and make enough money to raise them, you know? That's, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I just uh, saw a tweet from the best-selling author Ellen um, Hildebrand Mm -hmm. the other day where she said, note to aspiring writers, um, I wrote two novels while raising infants and toddlers. I wrote a novel while going through a divorce. I wrote a novel um, while being treated for breast cancer. Um, the key to uh, writing and publishing is not talent. It's discipline. Yeah. <laughs> I oh, could yeah. not have agreed oh, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was my experience, too. I have all six of my novels, um, well, this last one, um, was written over the last few years um, is the first novel that I was able to write um, without a child in the house. My older, my other five novels are all written while raising two boys. And um, uh, that was a handful. It was an absolute handful and it required a tremendous amount of determination and, and discipline and tenacity. Mm-hmm. Um there's no, there's no, but I think of like the story I heard of, uh, read about uh, Toni Morrison taking the train to work every day. You know, she mm-hmm. had several, ch- four children, I think. Um, and, you know, she was writing on the train at six in the morning on her way to work, her first novel. And you, you do what you have to do. Yeah. Uh, there's no, there's no, um, no big fellowships and uh, being handed out in a room with a view for the majority of us, you know. <laughs> yeah, not so much. Uh, we just have to carve out the time and the space as we can and and get to work, whatever it takes. So what motivated you to, to start writing, though? I, mean, I, I was motivated by money. <laughs> what motivated mm-hmm. yeah. you? Well, um, and that's 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 a good motivator. I mean, I you know, oh, also the writing bug, to... also the writing bug thing. Yes. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that sure. that. But sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it is good to be compensated for all these hours of work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, well, like you, I started a bit later as well. I I was a, a late boomer in many respects, um, but I had my first child when I was 23. So. Um, and then my kids are 10 years apart. So I went to college after my, did my undergrad after, um, my first son was born. Um, and he was around 10 or something when I graduated with a bachelor's degree. And then, um, then I had my second child and I was, I was offered an Oregon Laurel scholarship, um, by the, uh, uh, I, I attended Oregon State, and um, 
I was considering getting a master's degree in applied anthropology because I was interested in women's health. And um, I'd always wanted to be a writer, a fiction writer. But even in my undergrad, I, I did an anthropology degree with a minor in German. I didn't, I didn't do an English degree or a writing degree. I didn't think that kind of life was ever possible for me because I came from a working class family, I'm the first in the family to go to college. Um, I didn't grow up with uh, people reading books around me. I was uh, really the only one in the house who was reading books. And I was an anomaly. And um, being a writer seemed too far-fetched. However, when I was offered that scholarship, I had this moment of clarity because I had just had a newborn. And I did have the opportunity to stay home with him because my then-husband had a, a good paying job. And I had that option. I knew that if I took that scholarship and went down that road that I would throw myself at probably social work and women's health or something like that. And I would never look back and I would never be a writer. I just wouldn't. I just Mm -hmm. knew that 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 other life would become my life. And um, I, I was terrified, but I suddenly thought, you know, it's now or never. I'm going to take a chance, turn the scholarship down stay home with my newborn baby and my young older son and, um, and try to write. Mm -hmm. And that became my mission because at that point I thought, well, everybody knows I'm doing this. And my husband at the time was supporting me to do this and I didn't want to let everybody down. So that was part of my motivation also. And, um, and I wrote and wrote and wrote. I wrote, you know, with him nursing in my lap, I wrote. I, I was absolutely determined and, and would not be uh, deterred from teaching myself how to write a novel. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I went on to, um, to get my master's degree in writing because I, I got book contract at the same time I got accepted into graduate school. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, I didn't have to do graduate school because it became clear that I could publish, but I really wanted to, like we were talking about earlier, I think, um, I wanted to give a voice to um, to the writing itself. I wanted to be able to talk about writing in a way that I could explain it to other people and to myself and without filling in all those gaps of analyzing literature and that sort of thing. I couldn't do it. So I, I got my master's degree, I got a three book deal and, and then I was off and, and running. And now, you know, I'm motivated by the work it, itself. I, I do feel, um, I do feel cranky when I'm not writing, but I also have book contracts and I'm on deadline and there are other people, different people now who are counting on me. Mm-hmm. It's part of the, you know, what I do makes um, their lives run as well. My publisher, my editor, my, my publicist, all these people who are um, the booksellers, everybody that is a part of this process um, depends on me to do my, my work. And um, so that motivates me as you're, well. You're motivated by money too. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> it sounds so dirty when you say it like that. I don't but, think you know, so. I'm all about it. I'm all about it. Women need to be making the money. And, you know, no, when you're talking true. about, you know, the booksellers and the publishers and the agents, you know, that what we create is helping to create their incomes, too. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's uh, it's far reaching. This whole thing. It is. And, um, and why not be successful at it? You know, I mean, why? I yeah. uh, I want to be successful at this. I don't see it as a, a an art that is so precious that money shouldn't touch it. You exactly. know, I'm not that writer. Right. Right. I know it. We we're mm. all in this big process of reframing the value of women's work, the value of women's creativity, our creative offerings mm-hmm. to the world has monetary value as yes. much as, you know, all of the generations and generations and generations of imagination that went into men's traditional work as engineers or scientists right. or construction mm-hmm. workers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not a dirty word, that money thing. It's how we, it's how we, it's how we raise our families and, you know, do our, do our work in the world. Yeah. 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 No, it's very refreshing to see, uh, these women in like the film industry outing their co-star, their male Uh co-stars, you know, going, wait a minute, we both did the work here and you made millions more than I did. Um, Hey everybody, take a look over here. And, uh, you know, and people are being held accountable for this and yeah. I uh, I couldn't be happier about yeah. it. Yeah, that power dynamic is present in every single industry. And mm-hmm. I spent decades working as a labor and delivery nurse, which is, you know, pretty much an all-woman's yeah. environment except for the doctors and the administrators. The doctors, yeah. the, doctors the mm-hmm. administrators, the hospital authorities were all uh, guys. And oh yeah. my goodness, there was pl- there were plenty of me too moments of oh I can where the only power imagine. dynamic yeah the power dynamic yeah was pretty strong. yeah that's a, yeah. that's another area where I feel very fortunate I mean part of it is being fortunate but part of it is taking control of my own um, birth experience my older son was born in Germany at the University Hospital in Düsseldorf. Um, mm-hmm. And I really didn't, I was 23 years old, didn't know anything about birth, really, um, but learned, obviously, very quickly. Uh, I had a young midwife who assisted me in the natural birth of my son, and I thought, well, that was an exhilarating experience. My mother had told me about her experience of giving birth to me, where she was, you know, given the twilight drug and was Mm -hmm. totally absent from everything. And I, when I gave birth, I realized how empowered I felt um, afterward, that if I could do that, I could do anything. And right. so my second child, um, I was then, we were living in Portland and he was born at home with a midwife. Um, and I, you know, I was surrounded by, um, women who, uh, I had a doula and a midwife and it was, it was such an incredible experience, um, to have him at home and give birth to a healthy boy and have that experience be ours, be, be my family. I know not everyone can do that and it isn't for everyone, but for me, it was empowering yeah. and it was beautiful and it's I wouldn't change it for the world. For a lot of women. Yeah. 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 During that yeah. same I time, have... if your son is 21, I was across the street over at a Portland hospital in the labor and delivery unit. And, um, I would say that the experience that you had is something that maybe at that time you would not have been able to have as a hospital, at a hospital birth. 
And, oh, I, yeah. I feel strongly that yeah. you're correct about yeah. that. In fact, um, because of my son's birth in Germany and the experience that, you know, when I moved back to the States and I relayed that to other people, they were like, wow, that's very different from <laughs> my experience. When I then entered college um, and majored in cultural anthropology, I had a focus. I did a lot of papers that I wrote um, on the birthing, birthing practices around the world. And my, my advisor, uh, my professor who um, was from India, his, his uh, specialty was also in birthing. And so I, I've been fascinated with it for all these years now. I, I feel um, there's something about it that for me, it set the tone for my own family and the closeness that we shared and just being able to play a role and have a say in the birth of my own children. It, it empowered me. And I think that carries on to my own children. It, it empowered them yeah. to enter into the world in an environment that was controlled in a lovingly healthy way um, because I, I've attended births of other people, one that uh, turned into a, a C-section and, um, and various other um, births in hospitals. And um, I don't know, you know, if I'm overstepping my bounds here, but in my opinion, they were interfered with to such a degree, uh, such an unnecessary degree that the, the mothers were so stressed out yeah. um, that the result was um, even more interference. Right. And, yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was so hard to watch and not say anything, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because it was their their choice. But um, yeah, I have I have witnessed that myself oh, as me well too. as um, studied oh, it. Too. I bet yeah. you have. Yeah. My yeah, goodness. Yeah. I know. Wow. I can only yeah. imagine. And I think that as a starting point for this huge role that women have of being mothers that, you know, I wish more and more that the first experience you have as a mother, which you were talking earlier, which is about letting go, your first mm -hmm. experience as a mother is letting that baby out of your body. And yeah, to be able to do that from a really empowered position where you feel you come out of it going, wow, I did that. As opposed yes. to a position where you're told what to do and you're interfered with even when something isn't really wrong and you're, you know, you're on this path where people are judging the whole darn way and monitoring the whole darn you know, it's really yeah. a very different starting point. And it, it is. We have a lot it is to that, learn. That, yeah, that monitoring of, you know, everyone, everyone watches the monitor right, and right. forgets that the mother <laughs> Yeah, the mother and the baby are right there. Like all becomes, let's look at the monitor and see what the monitor's doing. Yes. It's, a, it's so so strange. It's it so incredibly. Is. It's like sci-fi, you know. And it's, it's like, yeah, <laughs> and it's one of the million different ways that as soon as there's a baby on board, we quit looking at mom. We start looking mm, at mm -hmm. um, the baby. We start looking all at how is the baby, how is the baby, how is the baby. And we've created this monitoring yeah. system of tests and interventions and screening exams from the get-go all the way through delivery where yeah. all eyes are on risks for baby. And 
what, yeah. what happens in other countries that don't look at it that way is they are looking at mom. What's going on with mom? How are we supporting mom? What do we do for mom? And it only mm-hmm. makes sense that if you are supporting mom and paying attention to mom, baby's probably going to be baby. fine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, yep. and more and more hospital systems are, they know this, they know that you know, to take fetal heart monitoring as an example, that it's an imperfect Mm -hmm. science and monitoring doesn't reduce incidences of fetal harm. In fact, it increases incidences of unnecessary cesarean sections. And 99% of the time, and I'm sorry, that's probably not the very precise estimate, but it's darn close. The baby, mm-hmm. you know, when, when a monitor says baby's in trouble and we rush for an emergency C-section, baby comes out just fine 99% of the time. Yeah. That's a lot yeah. of unnecessary interventions for babies that are actually fine. And so, you know, we got to we gotta shift our perspective. And you and I could mm-hmm. talk about that for a while, I can tell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yes. I'm yeah. very passionate about yeah. that. Yeah. Absolutely. But what I have to do now is I have to wrap up our conversation with just a couple more questions. Okay. How would you fill in the blank? And you actually did this earlier, but I'm curious now if you're going to do it again. Nobody ever (laughs) told me that. Oh, (laughs) Um, well, yeah, I I think the first thing that comes to mind would be nobody ever told me that... um, that parenting would go on in 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 the ways that it has um, for so long, and now as I as I see it, and I, I clearly uh, ahead uh, will continue for all the years that I am a mother, and these boys are my children. Um, it never it never ends, um, not in the way that you think it will when they are grown and and out of the house. Um, And as far as writing, um, nobody ever told me how painful of an experience it would be, how much work it is and how hard it is on the body and the mind. Um, You know, I write novels and I have to stay with these projects for over the course of 300 pages, you, you know, takes, at least a few years. And, um, and, uh, I, that's a lot of hours, uh, sitting at a a desk and it takes a toll. It physically takes a toll and mentally takes a toll. It's exhausting work. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think before you do it, or if you've never done it, you think of it as being so glamorous, you know, (laughs) Oh, it must be so nice to be a writer, you know, like (laughs) if you're like sitting around in a feather boa, smoking a long cigarette, you know, and, um, it's hard work. It's really hard work, but it is as satisfying as I imagined it would be. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm sitting in my fancy sweatpants with my fancy hoodie on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm in my jeans with a hole in the knee that is not meant to be, uh, it was not put there by a designer <laughs> and i um, wearing big, thick, wool socks and a wool sweater and my hair is a little bit ratty from bedhead. (laughs) You're so glamorous. glamorous Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Well, my last question for you then is where are you in your life in terms of motherhood? Oh, wow. I am at 
such an interesting turning point. Um, my youngest son is turning 21 in just a few days. So there's another milestone. Mm. Um, and uh, both of my children live in Los Angeles. So they are, you know, hours away um, by car and plane. And I, I am both enjoying immensely uh, them as adults and the way that we are growing and, and relating to each other as uh, in, in their adulthood now, um, as well as still grieving the loss of their childhood, mm. the little people that they, they once were. It, it seems like it's still there just beneath the surface a bit. I don't know if it ever goes away, but it doesn't take much to, you know, to see an old photograph or something and feel that heart clench mm-hmm. of that little boy is doesn't even exist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. in that form, it's um, again. There's something very science fiction about motherhood that nobody really talks about. The way these different um, humans uh, appear and reappear and reappear, always in a different in a different form. And, um, and that is, and that is where I'm at now, like fully settling into, um, that new way of, of being with adult children. And, um, uh, it's, it, for the most part, it is really a pleasant experience. I'm, I'm so proud of my children and the, the people that they have grown into. And, um, and that is immensely satisfying to see. It is. Motherhood is satisfying and weird. <laughs> really hard. It's so hard. <laughs> yeah. Really hard. <laughs> well, Deborah, yeah. it has been a real pleasure to talk to you. We have a lot in common. Beyond yes, the, you too, Janie. Thank you. Yeah. Our state, our mutual yeah, friends. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you so much for yeah. in, inviting me. It's, uh, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Well, good. Well, I am pretty sure we're going to talk again down the road. Me too. (laughs) No doubt. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Our guest today was Deborah Reed, author of The Days When Birds Come Back. You can learn more about her at DebraReedWriter.com. You can learn more about me at JeanFaulkner.com. Tweet me at Gene Faulkner. Email me, Gene at Gene Faulkner. Find Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting on Instagram. Leave me a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to buy the book. Common Sense Pregnancy is available at Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, local bookstores. It's everywhere. Go buy it. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Bye-bye, everybody.